0: Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Paul um, Ramsey, as Lauren said. I am a church planter. Uh, This morning I said I'm a church planting resident, but I was actually uh, honored to be ordained for Sunday of October to plant Sojourn Bracewood Church, which is exciting. Thank you. Stop. Okay. Oh, no. Um, Yeah, so it's a huge honor to be with you this morning preaching God's word. Um, I really do every time... Nearly every time I get up to preach, I hear the word preached, or excuse me, hear the word read and just think the, the Lord needs to breathe life into my words because they cannot hold a candle to God's words. Um, it's a huge honor to be before you this morning preaching God's word. Um, to give you a little bit about where we're at in Brazewood, uh, Brazewood, if you're not familiar with the area, is the southwest corner of the inner loop of Houston, the 610 loop. So we're, um, if you know our West U, South Side Places, we're dr- right south of that, south, just south of the Med Center uh, Rice University, um, and we are planting there uh, for the same reason that Sojourn Heights is planted here. We want to plant to see the blessing of God spread uh, to our neighbors through the hope that we have in Christ, the love that we have for one another through which we hope that our neighbors will come to see the love of God for them. Um, and, and profess faith, we want to see the hope of Jesus, the kingdom of God spread in our city. And so we're excited, we've, uh, we've been really encouraged at where we are relationally with our neighbors. Um, it's, a really, it's, a, it's a wonderful neighborly neighborhood, um, and we are eager to see those friendships that we've been building over the past year and a half uh, turn the corner into gospel conversations so that we could see people come to know the Lord um, because that is our ultimate hope. In planting that church that people who are lost at the moment, whose names are written in the book of life as it's said in the word, uh, who don't know it yet, come to know it. And so, um, if you are uh, in the area, if you live close by down there, or if you know someone close by, I'd love to meet you or whoever that person is who you know. Um, my email address is paul at sojournbrazewood.org. Um, you can Google Brazewood if you want to know how to spell it, uh, but you can also get in contact with me through any of the staff here. Um, would love to. To, to, to talk with you, to meet with you. Uh, won't force you to come plant, but we'll invite. Um, and we'd love, to, we'd love for you to join with what, we, what you're doing. Okay, we are in the season of Advent. Uh, this is a season of longing in preparation for the birth of Christ our Lord. During Advent, uh, Christians are sharing in the ancient anticipation of the coming Messiah while simultaneously longing for his second coming. And this Sunday, excuse me, this year we are in the book of Isaiah, looking at some of the passages of promise and expectation for this coming uh, Messiah, uh, where we're exploring some of the implications of his coming for us and for the world. And as we turn our attention to our passage this morning, I want want to invite you to consider something with me. Uh, As we engage in a season of waiting, uh, waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ, the season of Advent is an invitation for us today to slow down, and notice ourselves, to see where we are, perhaps give name to struggling, uh, to suffering, to yearnings that we have, that we spend so much time in our life trying to filter out with the noise of entertainment and busyness that, that characterizes our current culture. A few months ago, I read a book um, that I highly recommend to all of you, whether uh, whatever stage of life you're at. It's called TechWise Family uh, by uh, a pastor named Andy Crouch. And in this book, uh, Crouch makes A key observation, he observes, of course, that as many of us know, we're in an instant culture. And what that means is that we're in a technological moment in which we've learned that easy everything is the norm. There's no need to wait, no need to work hard. Tech says to us that we ought to work smarter, not harder, which is great. But a side effect of that is that we no longer have to wait for things communication, food preparation, transportation, entertainment, heating and air, coffee even, these things used to take time and preparation in order to provide for ourselves and now they're just a click or a drive-through or a quick trip to the store away from us. The only reason that the delivery business isn't bigger than it already is is because when we see that it'll take 30 minutes on our app, we think, oh, what an inconvenience, I can just go pick it up myself. And listen, the conveniences that we enjoy today are not a bad thing. I enjoy many of them, and rightfully, uh, rightly so, I think. Um, but that means that cultivating patience, that fruit of the spirit that is by definition something that we cannot rush ourselves into learning, is something that we need to work at, or else it will just slip right by us. The reason I tell you this is because Isaiah 35, our passage for today, begins in the wilderness. It's a glorious passage of promise, of hope, and joy, but in order to get a real handle on exactly how good this coming day is going to be, we've got to start where our passage starts, in the wilderness, in the doldrums, in this yearning and groaning that the prophet is speaking into while God's people are waiting for this glorious day, and so that's where we're going to start. As we look at this passage, we're going to see, I think, that it is a remarkably practical passage so rather than simply giving a description of this coming day that's meant to, to uh, encourage and excite God's people, while it certainly is that, this passage also gives real practical handles for them to hold on to, invitations to action that inform the life in this in-between, in the waiting, in the patient endurance that characterizes life in a world that is awaiting Christ's full and final restoration. See, these are invitations that echo forward even into the present day for us as we await Jesus' second coming. And so with that, Let's begin. Let me read Isaiah chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. We'll read a few verses. It says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, which is a flowery plant. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So in the very first line of our passage, we are brought straight to the wilderness. And the wilderness is described for us in very practical, uh, experiential terms. In some future day, this wilderness and dry land shall be glad and shall blossom, rejoicing with joy and singing. But at this time... God's people who are receiving this word are surrounded by wilderness and drought, right? by desert and arid land. And as a result, verses three and four, they're feeble, they're weak, and they're anxious. So instead of beauty and blooming flowers to behold, there is dryness and desert. Rather than joy and exuberant singing, God's people are filled with anxiety, groaning, and pain. And in this, I think we see the first thing that this passage is inviting us to do. Right off the bat, we're invited to feel the wilderness, to feel the wilderness, where hands are weak, where knees are shaky, where our minds are mired in anxiety. Because you see, while the desert wilderness was very much a physical reality for God's people, over the centuries, the concept of the wilderness had taken on a much more comprehensive meaning for them. When they heard the word desert, they would have thought much more than simply the dry land in which they lived. It had become a metaphor for their entire reality, not just physically, but relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. In other words, the whole of their lives was characterized by wilderness and drought. And this is an important question to consider at this point is why? Why are they in the wilderness? Where does this wilderness and desert come from? It's not just that this is a cold, hard world. Right, that the universe is generally an inhospitable place for life. It's not a, the, the desert is not this naturally occurring part of the world that's just harder to live in than the other parts of the world. No, when God's people considered the wilderness and the dry land, they knew exactly where it came from originally. It came from human sin. If you think back to the story of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman were created and placed in this lush garden, characterized by joy, peace, gladness, blossoming flowers, with many rivers providing water that was necessary for life throughout the garden. When they sinned, though, Adam and Eve were cast out of this garden as a consequence of that sin. And you might be familiar with the words of the curse that God spoke to Adam, the final words that God says to humanity, really, in this lush garden. On account of sin, Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat from the ground until you die and return to the ground from which I created you in the first place. So life in the wilderness, in other words, is no random occurrence It's a consequence for human sin, and it's a comprehensive reality. Not only is the land dry and cracked, but man's life shall be marked by pain rather than joy, by hard and sweaty work that will disappoint rather than fulfill, yielding thorns and thistles instead of bountiful produce of the land, and in the rest of the curse, we see that the relational conflict, uh, that relational conflict will abound in humanity, even between the man and and his wife. And as we trace through the story of the Bible from that beginning up until this point, rather than things having gotten better, we see that the wilderness has instead spread and worsened as that original sin multiplied into more and more sin. As evil is repaid for evil, the world continued to be filled with this unrighteousness, wickedness, and sin. The wilderness was perpetuated and spread And before we move on, Isaiah gives us, I think, a very specific picture of the nature of the wilderness, baked into a central feature of what that coming salvation that he's talking about is going to look like. And stick with me for just a moment. I think this is important. Here's what I mean. Look with me at verse four. When Isaiah points them to God's coming as their source of hope and strength, he doesn't just say, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come, he will come and save you. That would have been great news of course, but it would have been a bit vague. What does it mean that God will save his people? Isaiah doesn't leave this up in the air. He tells us what God will bring with him when he comes to save his people. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come to save you. So what is that talking about? That's justice language. When God comes to save you, he will come with vengeance, with judgment for sin and wickedness. And recompense, which is a word that means payment or retribution, God will come to exact revenge and retribution on the account of sin. So a central feature of life in the wilderness is injustice, and a central feature of the coming salvation of God is justice. The wrongs will be made right, and justice will reign. You see, justice is near and dear to the heart of God and to the, to the purpose of God for humanity in the world. Throughout the Bible, with Isaiah being no exception, justice always goes hand in hand with righteousness. To give just two examples from Isaiah, there's this iconic passage in Isaiah chapter five about the vineyard of the Lord being planted but bearing wild fruit and as a result being destroyed. And listen to the things that God was looking for. Isaiah chapter five, verse seven says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, excuse me, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And listen to Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. This is probably the most popular, the most often read Advent scripture, Christmas scripture that Christians read. You'll recognize it as soon as I start reading it. But listen to the two things that go together as as a solution for the problems of the world. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of, the hosts, of, of hosts will do this. And so this coming king, this increase of the government that's coming to sit on, on the Messiah's shoulders will be both established and upheld with two things, justice and righteousness. Righteousness. Throughout the Bible, justice and righteousness always go together. If you have one, you will have the other. If you don't have the one, if you, then you will not have the other. Where there is unrighteousness, there will necessarily be an absence of justice. And so as unrighteousness and sin have covered the world, the resulting environment of that world is a world filled with injustice. And you see, God hates injustice. Let me illustrate it for you briefly. We know this is true. Picture with me for a moment uh, that you're an adult playing a game with a six-year-old. Could be a board game, could be a game of pickup basketball. And let's say that you're playing totally within the rules of the game. You haven't broken any rules, and you absolutely crush the kid. Right? You're playing Monopoly, and the kid is excited to pass go to pick up his fifth property, and you've just built your fifteenth hotel, crushing it. You're playing pickup basketball with this six-year-old kid, and you score a layup you know, to make the score 20 to zero and you, you know, go back to the court dribbling saying, make it, take it, game point, crushing it. Everyone knows that there is something wrong with that. You may have played exactly within the rules of the game, right? But everyone knows that that is simply not fair. We know inherently, right, that the strong have an obligation to the weak, a responsibility to lift up the weak rather than to crush them. It's written in the very fabric of our hearts because it's written into the fabric of God's heart to care for the least of these. Go out of your way to care for them, to lift them up. And when we get to things more serious than games like that, like economic practices or dishonesty or theft or violence, God is especially concerned about the strong taking advantage of the weak. He hates it. And at this time in history, injustice was a given aspect of the human experience. And many of us today in this room have got a little bit of work to do to understand this. This is hard for us to understand because we live in a time and a place of relative safety. In the context of the human experience across history and across the world, you and I here in Houston live remarkably safe lives. Lives in which the most dangerous things that we do are typically our recreational activities. There are certainly criminals out there. And bad things may happen to you. But for us, the police are usually only a phone call away. And I know I risk oversimplification here. Please know that that's not my intent. The point that I'm trying to make is this. We don't live with an ever-present understanding that at any moment bandits might come through and steal your stuff or harm you or rape you with leaving you with nothing to do about it. Lindsay and I, my wife and I, watched this movie a few months ago called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind it's a Netflix movie, Uh, it's a heart-wrenching, beautiful movie about a brilliant young boy from a poor village in Malawi in East Africa who invents a windmill to bring water from a well to water the plants. They're in this famine, it's a dry land, the rains never come, and so he invents this way of providing water so they can have food. And there's this heart-wrenching scene partway through the movie in the middle of this famine, which is due to this drought, where the boy has to leave his mother and sister at home alone in search for more grain. And these men come in, in this scene, to hold up his mother and sister to steal the little food that they did have. And as we were watching this movie, it was an absolutely, it was distressing to watch because there's nothing that these women, this mother and her daughter, her adult daughter, could do except watch and hope that they came out of the experience with their lives. There's no one to exact justice, no police to protect them, no number that they could call to say, hey, this happened, can you help us track down the, 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 the thieves? It's just a world in which the strong oppress the weak. It's a heart-wrenching moment in that movie, and that dog-eat-dog kind of world is the world of the Bible very much. The strong are oppressing the weak with no recourse. The righteous are looking to God, saying, how long, O Lord, will the way of the wicked prosper? And as a result, God's people are left with drooping hands, with shaky knees, anxiously awaiting the next calamity, the next thief, the next trauma, and as we begin to grasp this, we hear the invitation of God in this word. We hear the invitation into this story to feel what they felt, to feel the wilderness. They were in the wilderness and the wilderness, the injustice in the wilderness was a problem to be fixed. The problem is, the problem is that they'd been looking in all the wrong places for the fix. When Isaiah says in verse four of our text, behold your God, this would have been a word of encouragement and hope for this coming God of salvation. It would have been a gracious uh, invitation from God to look at him, but it also would have been a word of correction, something of a rebuke for his people. You see, God's people wouldn't have heard this verse and said, oh man, we haven't thought of that before. If only we had known that it would be God who would be coming to save us from the wilderness. No, for their entire history, God's people had been invited back into his presence by God himself where they would find joy, peace, justice, and righteousness. But up until this point, rather than turning to God, we've seen God's people again and again try to secure this salvation, this justice, this peace for themselves. Repeatedly, they turn to their own way. They turn to other gods. They turn to other nations so that they could get their picture of their understanding of what they wanted things to look like. And as a result, God is calling them back. He's essentially saying to them, you got yourselves into the wilderness here in the first place. And in your weakness and anxiety, rather than turning back to me, you've instead turned to other nations, to the might of man, and that has made it even worse. It has only resulted in more weakness, less justice, and a a much more uh, pervasive wilderness. And you see, today, in the United States, we're not altogether that different. We like to think that we've come a long way, and in some ways we have. But it's easy for us to think that we've achieved something. We've got police. The world is safer. We've made progress in the democratic process. We've been able to cultivate a society where justice prevails more often than not and things are, are, are likely just gonna get better from here. But even today, time and again, we learn that the justice that we thought we were experiencing isn't actually being experienced by all. I think of the Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movement. What do those two movements have in common? At their, at their root, their are outcries seeking justice. While many in the world live their lives thinking that all is dandy. There are these voices, these voices of the weak, the minority speaking out to say, hey, we're not getting the justice that we need. In fact, if you think about all the big civil movements we've seen in recent history, think of the past 100 years, give or take. The women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. What are all these movements doing at their root? I'm not saying that I agree with every premise of, any, of, of all of those movements, but what are all of those movements? What do they have in common? They're all seeking. Justice. Justice for the less than. The problem that we find is that time and again, as history repeats itself over and over again, we've seen and we will continue to see that we won't get it ourselves. We have definitively demonstrated that as human beings, we are utterly unqualified to secure the just society that we desire on our own. Every time we achieve relative safety for one part of the population, another suffers. Wherever there is a winner, there is a loser. It's disheartening. It might even lead us to a sense of cynicism. Why should we even try to achieve justice in the here and now? And the thing is, that's exactly where God wants us. In verse 3, this image of weak hands uses a word that means drooping. They're drooping hands. And that doesn't really translate that well into today's culture. uh, Today's equivalent to that would be like throwing up our hands in defeat a gesture of helpless resignation that nothing that we do is gonna help. It's an image of helplessness induced by fear, and that's what God wants us to see. He wants us to feel our weakness in the wilderness and to see the uselessness of our own efforts without him, and as a result, direct our eyes upward to look at him and see him coming to save us. In the book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, there's a pastor and writer named Eugene Peterson who wrote this, He said, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. You see, the life of faith comes with, uh, with arduous uncertainties. And it's not an obvious choice to our human minds, to our hearts, that we should choose God. It is only when we are in the wilderness, when we are feeling the desolation of the human experience, the hopelessness of the human endeavor without God, that we will turn our eyes upward to God. And that is when things change. In the words of one commentator, it is only when we turn to him, recognizing the uselessness of all other help, that we can perceive his coming to us and find joy in becoming complete with him. It's only then, and this, this is true repentance. So often today, we confuse repentance with penitence, with some sort of feeling that we somehow think pays the price for our sins because we feel bad enough but that's not what repentance is. Eugene Peterson again says this. Says repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own god. It is decided that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education and training to make it on your own. It is decided it is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God is telling you the truth. He continues To be told that we are wrong is sometimes an embarrassment, even a humiliation. We want to run and hide our heads in shame, but there are times when finding out we are wrong is sudden and immediate relief, and we can lift up our heads in hope. No longer do we have to keep doggedly trying to do something that isn't working. And it's that second kind of finding out that we were wrong all along that is going on here in this passage beholding God in such a way that reveals the uselessness of all other help inevitably brings us to a moment of immediate and sudden relief, because when we see God, we see Him coming to save us. And the picture that we're painted, that is painted for us here of what God's coming salvation is going to look like is beautiful. Look with me, starting in verse five. Then the eyes of the excuse me, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The blind shall see, the deaf shall hear, the lame shall jump, the mute shall sing. This coming salvation of God is both comprehensive and remarkably physical in nature. Back in verses one and two, we saw that the wilderness will be transformed into this lush garden, which will lead to God's people seeing the glory of the Lord. And not only will the wilderness be watered, which we see referred to again here in verses six and seven, but our bodies will be healed as well. The sickness and desert that characterize life in the wilderness far from God, will be met with healing and the water that brings new life and bloom to the garden. It's this glorious promise. And a beautiful invitation from God, turn to me, because in me you will find your salvation. But you know the really good news in this passage is, you see, the thing, the thing is, God's people never actually turn back to him fully. But the history of God's people, even after this point, is a history of God inviting them to repent and then making it look for a moment having like a burst of faithfulness and repentance, but then very quickly turning in idolatry and sin to their own way, to the ways of the world. Time and again, his people never turned back to him fully. And so what was God going to do about it? We're told right here in verse four. What was it that they were to say in order to strengthen one another? Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Did you hear it? He will come. Come. When we turn to behold God, we don't see God shaking his head at us in disappointment. We don't see an aloof God detached, waiting for us to work our way up to him in heaven. No, we see God coming down to us right where we are, exactly as we are, out of love for us. This is the message of Advent. This is really what sets apart Christianity from every other religion. God's glory will come, not because we've shown ourselves worthy to receive it, but as a gift, verse 2. Salvation is not something we earn for ourselves, but something that God comes down, verse four, to provide for us himself. And as God's people in Isaiah's day looked forward to the day when God would come and save them, today, we look back on the day when that salvation arrived in the person and work of Jesus. You see, in Jesus's ministry, he demonstrated that he came as the full answer to all of God's promises, dealing not just with the root of our sin, but also with its effects, the sickness and death experienced on account of sin, in fact, the, the promises that Isaiah gave in this passage are appropriated explicitly by Jesus during his ministry. Just two examples Luke chapter 7, when John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you actually the Messiah we've been waiting for? Jesus did this. It says, In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered the disciples of John the Baptist, saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Mark chapter seven, this crowd surrounding Jesus marvels. They were astonished beyond measure, it says, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus fulfills all of the scriptural expectation for the coming one who would bring healing. He fulfills all of them to a T. In verse seven, Isaiah gives us this image of burning sand becoming a pool. What is that talking about? That's talking about this phenomenon that happens in the desert. Um, Burning sand creates a mirage that looks like a body of water because that's what you want it to be. History of the desert is full of people who have died of thirst, chasing what they thought were bodies of water, which were just mirages. Mirages. Right? The, the appearance, the, the, the light refracts through the heat rising from the desert, leading people to think that they were close to water. And what God is saying here is that this burning sand will actually become a pool. What you are looking for, what you are thirsting for, what you're parched for, will not be just a mirage, but it will be provided for you on that day. And what did Jesus say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink see, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight um, says this phrase that you may have heard before. It says, all creation has been groaning in the pangs of childbirth. All creation has been groaning under the, under the weight of the curse, the effects of the curse. And then Paul says two words. He says, all creation has been groaning until now. In Jesus, this day has come. Water has begun flowing into the desert. Life is flowing into the desert. This day has come. And while this restoration, which is remarkably physical in nature, broke in with Jesus, it will ultimately be finished for all time in the second coming of Christ, excuse me, the second coming of Christ, which will bring with it the renewal of all things. And so far, so, so far we've seen in this passage uh, the invitation to feel a wilderness where hands are weak, where knees are shaky, where anxiety mires us. We've been invited to see the uselessness of all other help in a way that causes us to turn and behold God who is coming to save us. And then the last thing I think we're invited to do is here given to us in this final image that we're given of a highway. We are invited to walk in the way of holiness. Let me read verse eight, starting in verse eight. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, emphatic, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So there's a lot here, but I want to point out three things that I think this picture of a highway does for us. One, the first thing is that it shows us that this coming salvation of God will be an invitation to a journey to a life of walking, and this is interesting. This is important, I think. See, we've felt the wilderness, we've seen our folly, we've turned to God, it seems like God's gonna heal and beauti- heal us and beautify the land for us, so what is a highway doing here? Isn't all that stuff enough? Right, for a moment, you might think that the coming salvation, the coming Messiah, would be an arrival, right? Kind of like the Messiah coming with a lazy boy saying, have a seat, I've got it from here. That's what God's people had come to expect by the time Jesus came, right? They were expecting the messianic arrival to be their arrival in Zion in this heavenly city where all of the plan of God is fully and finally realized. They were expecting that to happen on this day, but no, that, but that's not the picture that Isaiah gives us here. When salvation comes from God for his people and the Messiah establishes this reign of righteousness and justice, which we've talked about for the past few weeks, the resulting establishment will be a way, a highway, a road to travel on, a road that will eventually lead to Zion, to Zion. Think about what Jesus said when he came. You remember what he said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What did he say to his followers? He said, come, follow me. In his ministry, Jesus came to do exactly what God said he would do here in Isaiah chapter 35. He established a highway, a way of holiness, a path to follow, a path through death that leads to Zion, to life everlasting. He was the first to walk on it. And just as he looked at his followers, inviting them to come and follow me, he looks to you and me today and says, come. Will you come and follow me? This is the way that leads to Zion. This is the only way that leads to this promised land, to the presence of God, where, there, where alone there is fullness of joy, peace, worship, justice, righteousness. The second thing that this picture gives us, I think, is a description of what this life, what this journey looks like, and the description we're given is very clear. Simply this, God's highway, God's highway is safe. In man's country, travel is hard, but in God's country, travel is easy. No lion or ravenous beast will be there, verse 9 tells us. In the ancient Near East and in this land, lions were an ever-present anxiety-inducing reality. Why were ravenous lions spoken of so much in the Bible? It's because they were there, everyone saw lions and everyone was terrified of them. They were a very real and present danger. And furthermore, these images of of ravenous beasts and lions are borrowed elsewhere in the Bible as metaphors to describe strong ones of the world who oppress the weak. Even Satan in 1 Peter 5 is described as this lion prowling around seeking to devour. The point is clear. There is safety on this highway. As one commentator put it, Our human attempts to care for ourselves only increase our insecurity, but to depend on God is to find a security that none can harm, and this leads us to a really important clarification. You may be familiar uh, with the verse in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul and hell." I really like the NLT, the the New Living Translation. It says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. This is why the Apostle Paul can say those, those three words that have incited me to repent more often than not is death is gain. How could Paul say that death is gain? In the eyes of the world, death is the ultimate loss. But for the one walking on the highway of the Lord, though the, the, the one walking on the way of holiness, nothing can touch them. Nothing can stop, verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord returning and coming to Zion with singing. And this is an important clarification because what this passage is certainly not telling us is that pain will not touch you. Look at the other stories of the Bible and consider, actually, consider the story of Stephen. You might be familiar with it. He's an early church preacher who, came, who, who preached after the death and resurrection of Christ. And Stephen was preaching the gospel when he was stoned on account of his preaching. He was killed because he was preaching the gospel. He was killed because he followed the way of Jesus. But if you remember, when he was killed, what did he have? He was killed with a fire in his belly, with joy in his face. I have seen the glory of the Lord. None who walk in the way, verse 8, shall go astray. This passage is not telling us that pain will not touch us. What it is telling us is that the evil of the pain that we face cannot touch us. As Brandon said last week, your suffering does not have the last word in your life. Your pain, your trauma, your cancer, even your death, none of these things have the last word because none who walk on the way shall go astray, verse 8. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, as we're told in Romans 8. The way of holiness, the way of life lived in pursuit of God is a journey of patient pilgrimage, of sojourning in this world, making it clear that as we journey, we are journeying to a place far greater than this. Though we will face pain and suffering, we we share in the power of the indestructible life that Jesus died in order to give us. Which brings me to the third thing that this image gives us. It shows us the way onto this highway. This is the way of holiness. And holiness refers to, be, to being set apart for God's purposes. And who is it who qualifies as holy to walk in this way of holiness? Verse nine, the redeemed of the Lord. Verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return, shall come to God in Zion with singing and everlasting joy upon their heads. So this holiness, in other words, is not the self-salvation project of the Pharisees who lined up their accomplishments thinking that their good works, their good words, were what saved them. No, this holiness is the cleansing that is not earned, but is received by us as a gift from God, is the cleansing that Isaiah received in chapter 6. Isaiah himself, the prophet. When he was given a vision of the glory of the Lord, he fell flat on his face, saying, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone, I'm as good as dead. But this angel draws near to him, the seraphim, draws near to him with a coal in his hand and touches his lips saying, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. To be holy, in other words, is to be cleansed. To be cleansed by God, and this is so important. Uncleanness, which we see there in verse eight, the unclean shall not pass over it, is a ritual term. All human beings are unclean until they are ritually washed. Uncleanness refers to the impurities that are dealt with in the sacrifices that God has instructed his people to make. Thus, Those who are disqualified from the highway were those who self-disqualified through the failure to use the means of grace that God provided for them. Those walking in holiness, on the other hand, were those who had availed themselves of the the means of grace that God had provided for them, this divine provision. And when Jesus came 2,000 years ago to live the perfect life that none of us could so that he would be worthy to open the scroll, to die in our place, Receiving the punishment of God that is due to us for our sin, when Jesus came to pay the highest price possible, he died in order to make this provision for us once and for all. He died so that he might become himself the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we get on this highway? What is the on-ramp to the way of holiness that leads to life, that leads to restoration, that is characterized by everlasting joy and gladness, this pilgrimage that leads to joy and peace? The way is simply this. Turn to Jesus and begin walking. The most helpful definition of Christian discipleship that I've heard uh, is simply this. The discipleship journey is the journey of constantly taking the next step of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship isn't getting everything figured out today. Discipleship is a patient journey of taking the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, of becoming made more and more like Jesus, trusting that he who began a good work in you, that he who began a good work in all of creation will bring it to completion on the day of his return. This journey can often feel like a slog. The wilderness of the world can be disheartening, disheartening. But there are many of us on this journey together. You see, the invitation to walk is not the invitation to walk alone, but to walk as a part of a family who cares for one another. What kind of community ought we to be as we walk on this journey together? We ought to be the kind of community where exhaustion is okay, but exhaustion is not accepted as our everlasting reality. When we encounter one another's weakness, we can be tempted to dwell in one another's weakness, but that is not what we are to do. We are to enter into one another's weakness, yes, but we enter with words of encouragement. Verse four says, say to the anxious, be strong. It says, strengthen the weak hands and shaky needs with words of truth. This does not have the last word in your life. God does. There's this story in Jesus' ministry where he comes up to this paralytic who's sitting beside a pool wanting to be healed. And Jesus asks this paralytic, he says, do you want to be healed? And the paralytic says, he laments, he says, I'm so tired, there's no one here to help me get into the water. What does Jesus do? Does Jesus get on the mat with him and say, yeah, tell me about your struggle. Tell me how you feel. No, he doesn't do that. He says, rise and walk. There's healing for you today. This paralysis does not have the last word in your life. Is this the language that we use with one another, church? In this passage the tone of our lives is given. The way of holiness is the way of joy, of gladness, of singing. Notice the bookends of this passage. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 10. Joy in singing. Joy in singing. This exuberant outward joy. That word for singing means shouting loudly is another translation. This joy comes in the midst of suffering. In the midst of real suffering. But we do not suffer as those who without hope we name our pain and then we follow it up with what is true. I am not downtrodden, my God will deliver me and I will be with him forever. We're even told to rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings make us look more like Jesus. They unite us more, more closely with Christ in whose presence we abide and, and, and come to know the fullness of joy, the abundant life that he's offered for us. This life in which we await the day that is coming as the Jesus storybook Bible puts so well when all the sad things will come untrue. So to those who are weak, to those whose knees are shaking, behold your God who is coming to save you. He is with you and you will be with him forever. I think of David, I'm gonna close with this. I think of King David. Um, there's a story um, that's told for us um, about King David who is fleeing, this is before, actually before he's anointed king, he's fleeing from King Saul who is seeking his life and he's hiding in this cave and he writes this psalm and you'd think that he would be panicking that he'd be freaking out. The most powerful man in, the, in his life is coming to seek, him, seek after him in his life with his army, but he doesn't panic. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. Even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff they comfort me. You anoint my, my head with oil, my cup overflows. He's in the throes of suffering, of fleeing for his life, He's talking about his club is overflowing. How? <laughs> what kind of person does that? What kind of people live lives like this even when things are difficult? This is a people who know God. This is a people who have felt the misery of the wilderness, who have come to see the futility of any effort at fixing it without God, who have turned upward to God and seen, wow, God does not need me to do, any, do anything. He's coming to save me. A people who have taken that step of faith, who take one step, after another, awaiting the joy that comes on the day of Christ's return. So the question I leave you with is this, what is keeping you from that kind of faith? What is keeping you in yourself, in your own mind, trusting in your own way? Offer that up to the Lord right now. Look to him and acknowledge the futility of your self-salvation project and come to him. Begin walking, following Jesus, and watch as he changes your life, the life of our community, and the life of the world around us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, this afternoon now. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for this, your word, by which you teach us, by which you encourage us, by which you strengthen us. Lord, I pray that you would weave the truth of the gospel into our hearts here today, that you would help us to feel the wilderness of life and the world without you, and that you would cause us to repent, to truly repent, not wallowing in shame or guilt, but turning and saying we've been lied to by ourselves, by others, by the world and trusting you that what you tell us is true. And when we look at you, Lord, show us that you are coming for us, always. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. We need you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.